Welcome to another episode of the NRL All-Stars Podcast. This is Barnsley back for the weekly talk and footy episode. Well, about halfway through the season, so there's a lot of interesting storylines right now. But for this episode, uh, I was going to get on some uh, NRL royalty, but that's going to be next week. So just a little bit of a teaser for next week's podcast. We do have a former NRL player, current coach, and that one's going to be a surprise for next week for everyone that tunes in. But for this week, I'm really, really happy to have... Kane Anderson on, debuting on the All-Stars podcast. Kane Anderson is one of the creators of the Podmasters page as well, actually, in the Podmasters Cup, which some of the Supercoach followers might very well know and follow as well. It's a, uh, it's a great page and concept which gets the whole NRL and Supercoach podcasting community together where we have a big group and everything and we also have some competitions for Supercoach and stuff. But Kane's also a new Dolphins fan uh, and also a, a, a chiropractor as well any spare time. So Kane, welcome on board. I know you've been on plenty of the other podcasts and stuff, but it's nice to get you on for a chat about footy. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me on. I'm super excited to be here and already excited for next week's guest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm sure he won't be able to follow you up, mate, so don't worry too much. Your uh, your resume is pretty stellar too, but... um... Look, on if anyone's tuning in for the first time on these podcasts, it is the Talking Footy episode. We do have the Supercoach TLT episodes that we record every Tuesday and drops Wednesday. Had a great one with Wilfred I put up yesterday, and that one's a cracker of a Supercoach episode, so jump on and find that one. But every Friday, you'll have the Talking Footy episode drop after a Thursday record, and that one is talking only footy, all the big topics uh, and also reviews of the current round that's just gone, uh, what our thoughts are as, as fans, and also uh, a little bit about the past history of rugby league as well with um, the Legend Rewind, of which we've got a really special one, especially if you're a Queensland fan. I think you're going to really like the Legend Rewind at the end of this episode. But look, the first thing's first that we do on these ones. We always have a look, Kane, at the round that was. And I have to say, the round that just passed... Um, it was different to a lot of the other rounds. There's certainly some trends that are popping up, though. Round 14, it was uh, five out of eight of the games were absolute floggings, to be honest, and six out of eight of Yeah, and six out of eight of them were 13 pluses. It does seem like we've gotten to the point of the season, uh, which you, you sort of every season you kind of hope you don't get to, where the bottom teams almost half give up, uh, which it's funny to say that this round because the Bulldogs had a massive win, which we're going to talk about in a minute, but there was some big score lines on the weekend and, and some pretty disappointing performances. So a lot of flogging is not a huge amount of close ones in round 14. Yeah. It's really starting to go back towards how the game was going last year. The the scores are starting to get that little bit bigger. All of your, your outside backs are all starting to get a lot more involved again. There's a lot more tries being scored. So, yeah, it, it's slowly building back towards that. And like you said, some of those lower teams uh, are not improving at all. They're, they're slowly drifting backwards. Teams like the the Titans who are defending poorly. You've got um, the Dragons who are not doing a whole lot. Um, but then, like you said, the, the Dogs come out and pull out a special game of their own on the weekend. And, and look, I've, I've never been a fan of Barrett's, but I didn't expect this kind of swing in such a quick time. So, yeah, it's definitely an interesting part of the season. Yeah, I mean, let's have a look at that Dogs game first because I, I have to say, like, I think that that was a highlight for me. 
uh, in that as far as how surprised I was. I honestly thought that the Eels were going to absolutely tail up the dogs, as I think everybody thought as well. And even if the Eels played really, really badly, I still thought they'd end up getting a, a pretty easy uh, victory. Didn't happen. 34 to 4, the dogs won. And I would even say it was more comprehensive than that. And one of the things that really sticks out is when you have a look at the stats of that game, the Parramatta Eels had 51% possession. So it wasn't even like they didn't have much ball. And they also um, had an equal amount of line breaks, um, even the missed tackles. You know, the dogs actually missed one more tackle than what they did. And the dogs conceded 11 penalties to the Eels four. So you'd be forgiven looking at a lot of the stats, yeah, thinking that. The, the Eels would have actually gotten the win when you're having a look at it. But, you know, the ones that really do stick out, you know, the kick metres were terrible. Like the dogs kicked for 30, 40% more metres than what the Parramatta Eels did. And a lot of that comes down to um, the completion of the sets where there was periods of time where the errors, which the Eels did lead the game for pretty easily, were just so bad from the Eels. It was just in the first half, especially... And some of the second half kind of mastered it. But the first half, especially, you just saw that he was getting to the end of their sets um, in decent position too, third, fourth tackles, and then just turning it over and dropping the ball. And just, they just played really, really terrible. And it was one of those things where you sort of thought after the first couple, you know, they sort of, oh, it's all right. You know, they're not going to keep doing that. And they did. And the, the dogs actually punished them, which is something that you don't normally see. Um, and probably all is summed up for that game from both sides where you saw Mitchell Moses go across the try line, very nonchalant. And then terrible. Matt Burton with a lot of desperation <laughs> running over and hitting the ball out before he could actually score. Yeah, it was, if you're a Parramatta fan, that would have been one of the most painful games to watch because the Bulldogs were just ruthless. They just did not give them anything. The Every opportunity they got, they they took it. And the Eels had plenty of opportunities themselves but couldn't get the job done. And then you have like that Moses try where they're actually in position to get some points and they still managed to muck it up. But um, guys like Burton are just playing super well at the moment. He He's really turned the corner since the, that first half of what we've had of the season so far. And yeah, he, he's looking like a really good player. And I, if I was in selection panels, he'd be heavily in the discussion for origin for me. Where would you put him in origin based on his current performances? Well, that's the thing, isn't it? It depends on the availability of the centers and things at the moment, but then you've also, you've also got him as a potential mm-hmm. 14. Because he could play somewhere in the in the back row. He could play in 5'8", he could play centre. And then you've got other people who can move around and fill in at fullback and he can go and plug a hole or whatever as well. So, yeah, I just think he has a lot of versatility and he's a big body. He just feels like an origin player to me. Yeah, and look, his performance on the weekend, you know, three try assists, and that still doesn't really tell the story because his kicking game has just become such a weapon. You know, I've made the joke plenty of times that... um if you had the old unlimited interchange, you just you'd have him on the bench and you'd bring him on the fourth tackle every every set that you had and just get him to kick because his kicks <laughs> are just amazing. And we don't. I did a couple of weeks ago uh, with Luke Garrity on this podcast. We did a legendary one on Ricky Stewart. We spoke about how he actually uh, revolutionised how you pass and kick the ball, and he actually made it uh, attacking yeah, with the way he kicked. Um, even though it was maybe kicking from you know his own twenty five or whatever, they were just. They were just such massive, these torpedo bombs and all this stuff. But the way Burton strikes the ball and the distance and the height that he gets on it, it just, it makes it so difficult. And 
he he's played really good football for five or six weeks, but it was highlighted by his performance on the weekend, which not just the three tries, this, but that tackle on Moses, like like you said, um, and that's just so competitive, and that's it's what you want. The desperation, and that's that's origin to me. It's the desperation to do those little tiny things. It's what guys like Cronk and Thurston used to do all the time. Like they didn't have too many super flashy plays in Origin, but whenever there was a kick, they were the first one to make the tackle. If there was a line break, they were the ones that were on on their tail and cleaning up the crumbs. It's it's those little things that make the difference in Origin, and and he seems to be doing those things at the moment. Yeah, and like you said, with, with the kicking game, that as much as yeah, he's got a massive boot and can do all the different types of kicks and everything. But the thing that is the best part of it all is it's so consistent. He hits the ball well every time. The the reason why it's not so common for everyone is that it's hard to do. It's hard to hit it exactly the same every time and to get it to land in the field without shanking one or whatever every now and then. But he just seems to be able to hit it on the head every time and it's incredible to watch. Yeah, it really is. And, I mean, Adokar played well, got his three tries as well. That was another highlight. But Burton really made it quite easy for him. They had a really good play where... Um, that first half, Burton yeah, exactly. put that little um, cheeky kick in from about the 30, 40 metre line and Adokar early on knew it was coming and ran and just caught it and was in space and it was an easy try. Uh, and that those sort of things really do turn the game early on. And um, it's Burton's been playing really good footy for five or six weeks, basically in one of the, if not, I think they're still the lowest scoring side in the NRL. He's still averaging a couple of tries since a game over the last five or six weeks. So, he, he's been phenomenal. Uh, and obviously, we need to give the Bulldogs some accolades for how they played. But the Eels as well, you know, to lose 30-plus to the Bulldogs. is it Was that a sign on the weekend that this is a, the mid-season capitulation that the Eels are kind of known for, where they start well and then they, you know, mid-season they start to have these, uh, the shine comes off a little bit and by the time they hit the finals, it's the opposite to them peaking. You know, I think that's the Eels' concern at the moment. It's kind of yes and no because the Eels are a funny one because they'll go and beat teams like your Storm and Penrith. So you feel like they almost have their target games where they're all going to be really fired up for it. And then when it's not one of those target games, they really just don't turn up. Their energy doesn't get where it needs to be. They've lost to the Tigers earlier this year as well. So they're losing to teams at the bottom and, and really firing up for the, some of those bigger matches, which I'm glad I don't do tipping because it would be an absolute nightmare. But, yeah, I don't know whether it's exactly the capitulation or whether it might be the wake-up call that they, they needed to actually turn up every week rather than just when they feel like they've got a hard matchup. But, so, yeah, look, they're not firing at the moment anyway and they've got another tough game against the Roosters this week who could quite easily back up and put another score on them this week. So, you know, it, it could start to go downhill from here. And um, I, I hope that they do actually be a bit more consistent for the end of the year, just because their team is good enough to do it. And I, I don't like watching teams underwhelm when they should be better. Yeah, I agree as well. And there, there isn't probably a lot of um, top-heavy teams in the ladder at the moment that can really compete and beat some of those top couple sides like the Storm and Penrith. So you'd hope the Eels are going to get it together. But some of the other games as well, uh, pretty gutsy win from the Brisbane Broncos, although you could say it's a bad loss from the Raiders, whatever way you look at it. Um, Brisbane 24-18 over the Raiders. 
I think, you know, definitely the number one highlight and low light is the, the Bulldogs Eels in that last round of footy. But the the Broncos um, got a much needed win once again where they had Adam Reynolds hurt. Um, they've obviously got Payne Haas hurt. They've lost Herbie Farnworth for the season in that game with a bicep tear. Uh, and they still managed to get out the six-point win against the Raiders side. It's on a, a winning streak for about a month. So that was a, that was another big one and a key one too. A um, lot of injuries to come out of it, though. And funnily enough, it's um, and I saw you comment on this a little bit too, and I, I thought the same thing that Fox, Fox's coverage uh, and even some of the other media outlets have really changed their tune and, and gone, oh, you know, Adam Reynolds is hurt again. And uh, instead of talking up how stupid South were, they're now sort of starting to get ready to ramp up the how stupid of Brisbane for signing him for a three-year deal and his age and with his injuries and stuff. But, you know, I, you you may not have heard, but there was an episode probably six weeks ago where I spoke about it and heartily disagreed with all the South vitriol on, on Adam Reynolds and stuff, um, letting him go because, yep. yeah, well, it, to me it was you know, all of this stuff. And one of the things included was the fact of his age and that he is always, you know, quite hurt and people rightly bring up, oh, he doesn't miss that many games, Barnsley. But the thing with Adam Reynolds is he might not miss games, but it doesn't account for the games where he plays half of one when he gets hurt and goes off and he's up the tunnel and other ones where he's playing lame and he's limping around, you know, and and that's happened when he was a young man. He's not a young man anymore. So he's getting older now. So those things are going to like something that might've, been a two-week recovery might take three or four weeks to recovery now. Uh, You've also got the factor of if they signed Reynolds for three years at Souths, they would have lost Ilias. Mm. And look, Ilias isn't killing it at the moment. He's he's playing solid footy, but he's not a gun. But is it worth losing someone that might be a halfback for 10 years to have Adam Reynolds for another couple of years and him potentially missing time and slowing down at the end of that third year? Like, I I've always felt that it was, and and they did offer Reynolds another year mm. with little options going forward as well. So it's not like they didn't offer him something, which a lot of people miss. They they just think, oh, they just let Adam Reynolds go. Well, not really. They offered him a deal, but the Broncos just offered a lot of money and for three years. So it was a no-brainer for Reynolds to go. Souths were never going to compete. Yeah, and I was always of the belief that it was good for both teams um, and it was decent decision-making by all parties, including Adam Reynolds and Brisbane you know, still needed to sign Adam Reynolds regardless. But, yeah, it's it's funny how that's, that narrative is turning around and Fox especially should really be called out for it because, uh, yeah, don't, 100%. don't jump on uh, the NRL Talking Footy All-Stars podcast narrative, boys. It's uh, That's one we had right <laughs> from the start, so stop copying us. Um, <laughs> some of the other games as well that were kind of a highlight. The Storm and the Roosters, um, good game of footy, 26 to 18 at the Storm. Uh, I think that um, that was, you know, being a Roosters supporter myself, that was a pretty good result for us. I did lament that um, I think that the the highlight of that game that really was the match was Satili Tupanua got hold of a kick that he was running towards and it was just in his grasp and he's like juggled it in his hands, in goal, no one near him and all he had to do was fall on the ball and score. And he lost it. And that was with uh, yep. about six or seven minutes to go. And that probably would have been the ball game because I think they would have put the Roosters up by four. They would have got possession back. The Storm probably get the ball yep. back at the other end of the field unless there's an error or penalty and, and they have four minutes to to chase down a four-point lead. And in the end, the Roosters end up losing by eight instead. So uh, clinical by the Storm. But I, I think I thought for me as a Roosters fan, it was encouraging because uh, I did think that that was a really good competitive game that, that could have easily gone the other way too. Yeah, definitely. It was a really good contest. And as, as someone who 
like is not a supporter of either. I, I just enjoyed watching a really good game of footy. Um, both both teams have really good attack. The Roosters' defense is slowly getting there. They've still got a few little leaks every now and then, but yeah, it was a good game. That Tupanua thing, yeah, completely changes the whole context of that last ten minutes. So it was unfortunate. I, I think it is a positive for the Roosters. I think that they're starting to get their act together and that they'll be firing for this uh, run home after this last origin game. Yeah. And obviously one thing that did come out of that was a, um, a Kiri head knock as well, which a lot of been, a lot has been made of in round 14. Um, he's named to play this week, but whether he actually comes through and plays remains to be seen. But like, I, I did actually see some ex players come out and, um, and James Graham, especially, has come out and sort of said, you know, the media needs to slow up on this stuff. And I 100% agree because I've come out so many times and, you know, disagreed with some fans quite a bit on them calling out for people to retire and all this stuff. And it's not the fans' fault either. The media, to a large extent, kind of fuels that because they they want the controversy and stuff. So the big headline exactly. is always going to be the, you know, does Luke Keery need to retire, you know, enough's enough type of thing. And, and rightly, players, ex-players like Graham, have come out and said, hey, like, you guys aren't doctors. You know, it's it's wrong to be pushing a narrative that a player should retire or to be pushing these type of questions. You know, it's different if the club comes out and says, look, he's got some some bad issues or, you know, he's going to be out on medical grounds for a while for his head knocks. and all. That's a bit different, but it's almost the horse before the cart with how it gets reported now, whereas if you've had a couple of head knocks, the media goes straight for the doom and gloom or is it time for his career to end? I just think it's really unfair. Like, not on Luke Keery, just him, but it's happened with other players as well, like Wade Graham and stuff. And at the end of the day, you know, um, NRL Physio is a great podcast that's going now and obviously big in the Supercoach community, but he'll he'll talk about concussion a lot. And Brian will, will say, you know, every every concussion and every player and person is different in how they handle a concussion. You know, you can you can have five concussions yep. in two and a half years, which is what Kiri has gotten, and be completely fine. And the Roosters... And Wade Graham as well. They always talk about him as well. Yeah, 100%. And the Roosters medical staff have said, you know, he's, he's had no post-game issues or concussion problems. You know, it's, it's not an issue. So I, I do... That was unfortunate from that game. He did get a knock. Um, but when you do see, you know, sad stories like guys like Boyd Cordner and, and others, you do sort of think, well... You know, you don't want that to happen to players. So let's not push those narratives until it's actually a story to talk about. Yeah. And look, look the reports today are saying that he's passing protocols so far and that he, he'll be fine to play on the weekend. So the the whole calling for retirement, he apparently hasn't had a concussion in, what was it, two years or something? Like to go straight to, oh, you need to retire when A, they have no medical training whatsoever. And it's purely just, oh, he's had a couple sort of thing like, what is that? You, you don't have any experience with concussions and how different they are for each individual person. Like you can have a really nasty concussion and then be fine the next day, mm. or you can have a really minor knock and play out a game. And then the next day you're suffering from headaches and sensitivity to light and just fe- general feeling unwell. Like there's, there's no pattern to how big a knock is, to how bad your symptoms are going to be either. It's, yeah, just craziness to be calling for people to retire when they're they're not in the inner sanctum and having any sort of discussions as to what is going on. And one of the worst things too is that the media doesn't actually have any um, medical information. 
they, they you know obviously everyone's medical yeah. information is private whether you're a person on the street or whether you're an NRL player you might get told whether someone passes concussion protocols or they don't or whatever um, or get told they're having headaches or, or however much information the club wants to give out but at the end of the day you're not just not a doctor but you don't even have someone's medical file to read to even see so yeah that was the unfortunate yep. thing that came out of the Melbourne Storm Sydney Roosters game um, I will say you know the Roosters defense it was kind of a it was kind of a backhanded compliment for them in that game because they missed a lot of tackles um, and when you look at it you know they missed 46 tackles to the Storm 31 so it wasn't great um, and line breaks the Storm had eight to the Roosters two but yet it was an eight-point ball game that the Roosters could have won in the last six or seven minutes. And if you see some of the scramble defence, the scramble defence of the Roosters was something that was um, really positive for them and how they can do that against a, an attack that's right up there at the top of the NRL um, was pretty impressive too. So backhanded one there, Kane, because it was uh, a, a lot of line breaks, a lot of missed tackles, but they managed to be able to um, scramble and regroup and, and get around that still. Well, like I said before, it's about those little extra effort things the one percent the the extra chase instead of just giving up um when when someone makes a line break everyone chases back and then when you when the fullback makes the tackle it means that more people are back in the defensive line when the next play rolls around it's all those little extra efforts make a difference and and that's what that suggests that even though there was line breaks there was still a lot of effort to break them down Yep, and a big highlight for the Storm in that one as well, which is a real positive rugby league story, was the debut of Grant Anderson. Uh, obviously, wasn't going to uh, debut until uh, real late in the, the piece and then went and debuted and ended up with a crowd of 65 um, that I think were out to dinner and then had to change their plans to, to come and watch him because he wasn't meant to play. Uh, and then you had those great <laughs> scenes of his neighbour who, used to play backyard footy with him all the time and grew up with him, was in tears on the sideline, hugging him. Yep. That's great. And that's that's rugby league. Like, that's that's what you want to see yeah. in sport. So that was a real highlight and, and well done to the Storm as well for organising, you know, those 65 seats and everything. It wasn't too hard. The Roosters don't sell out very much, but uh, <laughs> I'll even say that. I can't just blame Roosters there. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> we've got a much bigger ground than other teams. I'll hang my hat on that. But, you know, it's... um. Yep. Yeah, it was it was really good to see, uh, and that's that's the sort of rugby league stories that you want to see week to week and around. So I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it's good to see a nice positive story because the, the media don't generally like them. So <laughs> seeing that all pop up on social media and the, the little clips of um, what did he, he called the the neighbor pop or something like that, mm. like just all of that little heartwarming stuff is is really good. And we need more of that sort of thing to be able to put out on social media news and whatever, instead of all of that negative drama that they all try and create. One of the other teams in the doldrums that sacked their coach was the West Tigers. And, you know, obviously the Bulldogs got rid of Barrett a little bit earlier in the piece, but not that not much earlier than the Tigers got rid of Madge. And um, they, along with the Warriors, both ended up with losses. There's normally the narrative that, teams back up and sort of have a point to prove after their coach gets axed. And certainly for the first 10 minutes, you could have thought that with the Warriors, but then they capitulated, as you'd expect, to the Sharks, 38-16. to Not a game to really write home yep. about. But the Tigers, I actually thought a Manly side that had DCE ruled out, um, and I've sort of thought this before with Manly, and they've made me look silly, and then other times when I thought they were going to win, they've actually gotten flogged. But 30-4, to they beat the Tigers, and really, you know, Aside from a Luke Garner try in the 35th minute, it was all Manly, and Manly just toyed with them. It should have probably been a bigger scoreline than that. So that was disappointing because they had an opportunity, the Tigers, to really turn up and make a bit of a statement. 
Campbelltown Stadium as well came. Yeah, up. yeah. I, I feel like that was a real opportunity for them to have a, a big game, stand up and go up against a Manly side who's, whose middles are not doing that well. Other than Olakowatu, the, the rest of the Manly middles are not doing a lot. They're, they're not getting heaps good go forward. The, the fact that the outside backs are all firing at the moment for them, like Garrick and um, the, the halves are linking together really well and giving a lot of space on the outside. So, yeah, I really felt like the Tigers had a good opportunity to really stand up, bash them up in the middle and, you know, just show some passion after having all of that drama over the last couple of weeks. And, yeah, they, they didn't do a lot and it was pretty disappointing. Yeah, I think one of the things with the Manly Tigers game is that sometimes numbers really do tell you the full story. Other times it doesn't. But this is one of those games where if you have a look at the numbers, it really does tell you around 14 story of the West Tigers and the Manly Seagulls and where they're at. So the Tigers conceded nine to three penalties. And then when you have a look at the missed tackles, that's really where you can see a lot of the attitude. Like when you're watching the game, you see this. But then when you look at the numbers, it actually reaffirms that the Tigers missed 50 tackles, which is massive. And it was to the to the to Manly's um, 23. And that's really where it was at. There was some really weak defence, some really soft, soft tries where three or four blokes had a go at someone and missed. Um, and it, it was just some really easy tries that were scored in that one. And there was nine line breaks to two as well, which is what you'd expect from missing 50 tackles. So I thought that was really disappointing. It's going to be interesting in round 15 where the Tigers go to because they've got real problems based on that round. But other than that, you know, it, it, those were probably the main um, talking points from the round. Everything else was fairly um, stock standard. The Penrith Panthers was probably the last one where they just reaffirmed how on top they are, where they just absolutely blitzed uh, the Knights 42 to 6. And it was only 6 because in the 74th minute, you know, the, the Knights ended up getting a consolation try. But the fourth minute, Nathan Cleary scored, and then it was just floodgates. Um, and then the only... The only stoppage was really the last sort of 15-odd minutes where really Penrith put the queue in the rack and even took players off and stuff because it was just all over. That's what I was about to say. It even felt like they were they were playing in second gear. They they never kind of really put the foot down at any point. They were just so easily dominant that they were scoring points anyway. Um, just the control that they have, the, the ease with which they go about their business is just incredible at the moment. It's crazy. Mm, and it does put uh, Newcastle back to 12th at the moment on only um, four wins, which is the same amount of wins as the Warriors. So, you know, that really gives you a worrying sign of where the Knights are at. And when we're talking yep. about this round, really exposing now um, who the poor sides are, the bottom five on the ladder now, are Newcastle Tigers, Warriors, Bulldogs, and now the Gold Coast Titans at the very bottom. And all those sides have between three and four wins. And the next side in Canberra is in 11th, and they've got two more wins. Uh, and that's a big difference when you're talking the difference between four and six wins. That's a huge yeah. difference. So, so that bottom five sides, I, I cannot see those moving after seeing round 14 play out. I think that that's basically the yep. mid-season point pretty much that um, puts a line through all those teams. But can you see any of those sides um, moving after round 14 and the performances that we saw? Because obviously Canterbury is probably the only one that was a bit of a shining light and showed some promise for the second half of the year. Yeah, look, Canterbury look like they they turned a little bit of a corner. Their their attack is starting to flow a, little, a lot better. Like I said before, Burton's really kind of taking control of everything and is doing a really good job of it. And I can see them getting a few more wins. I don't see them getting anywhere near the top eight or anything like that yet. I think that um, 
the Raiders in 11th is as low as we're going to be getting those 9, 10, 11 are the only teams that have a shot of kind of pushing in at this point. But that doesn't mean for those bottom teams that there's nothing to play for either. I, I feel like it's, uh, I hate watching teams go out and kind of just not put it in because they're done sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I do hope that they all keep fighting and teams like the Bulldogs, they have something to fight for. They've been on the bottom of the table for a while. They're starting to play some good footy. If they can finish this year playing well and take that into next year with a few new recruits and things, then yeah, it, it's good signs. Let's move on to the next topic. So next topic is match review charges. Uh, now the first one that came out around 14 was the, the Naden send off. Uh, I'm, I'm fine with him getting four weeks. Um, because I think, and so a few people have disagreed with me on this, and I'll be honest, I don't really understand how, but I thought that the the Naden tackle wasn't as bad as the Lawton tackle, but even if people want to disagree with that, then certainly they've got to be similar, and Lawton got four weeks. But my my reasons why I thought the Naden one was worse than the weekend, um, and you know, I, I need to also mention that Corey Parker thought it needed to get more than eight weeks even though Lawton got four weeks for a similar sort of tackle. So yeah. it's it, it just astounded me how different the media opinions can be week to week on the same sort of things. But, you know, the Fox Sports said it was the worst speed tackle they've ever seen. I All those guys oh, have watched God. more rugby league than what I've seen, and there's far worse speed tackles in the history of the game than what, than what Naden did. And eight-plus weeks that. is just... Yeah, eight plus weeks is just ridiculous. So he got four and I was happy with that. But the reason why I thought it was similar to the Lawton tackle was um, the Lawton tackle to me was worse because it was just him involved and he went on with it the same as what Naden did. Like Naden didn't let go and drove yeah, and that was bad. But Lawton did the same thing. But the big difference between the two, which really annoys me that more people haven't mentioned in the media, is that uh, Tamau was actually on the top of that Brent Naden tackle. So whenever you've got a second person involved in a tackle, you've got 50% less control because yep. you know, you've got the weight of Tamau and the actual physics of Tamau pushing down on the top of someone on their torso whilst you're lifting. The physics of it is that you're not going to be able to control that as well. And some of that isn't going to be your fault um, to a degree. You yep. know, if, if that was one-on-one and Tamau wasn't there, he may very well have lifted him, put him flat on his back. You, you just you can't tell. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's something that's a big difference. Whereas... Uh, and the other thing too is that you don't actually know, right? So certainly when you're hitting a tackle low, you can't see or really have that much spatial awareness of what the defender is doing on top or even how much the defender is contributing to the tackle on top. And you're just going through with the tackle in a split second. So yeah, it, there's a lot of differences to a, a Lawton um, doing a one-on-one lift and, and drive spear tackle um, to me. But at worst, you, I'd consider them the same and they both got four weeks. So I was happy enough with the send-off. It was bad. Um, and it was pretty consistent, and I was happy with the four weeks. Yet there's, there's still people that think that that was a, that was really way too light. Yeah, I'm I'm happy with the send off. Uh, it was, yeah, it, it looked bad. It was a spear tackle. Yeah, send off. That that's not a problem at all. I'm also happy with the the matching of the four weeks. I think that as much as there was a second person involved in the tackle, I think the the landing was worse. He got Jake. And he was right on top of his head and it actually caused a lot of um, flex in the neck as well. So it, it was a really bad position. Whereas Lawton's one, Murray didn't get in too bad a position. As bad as it all was, he, he didn't get too much pressure put on the top of the head or anything like that. It, it kind of was a lucky one. 
So uh, I think the the fact that Jake ended up in a worse position kind of buffers the fact that there was a second person involved. So I'm happy with it to be a, a similar sort of suspension. Yeah, and I can live with it being the same. Um, I think that's fine um, because you can still have levels and, and they still end up the same, yeah. the same sort of suspension. Um, I mean, Tamal being there might have ended up making it um, a worse position, um, and I always think that it does. But, yeah, well, I think it was pretty good. It's it's also one of those things where there's certainly sections in the media with this Naden tackle who say, you know, that's not enough. You need more of a deterrent because the result can be someone ends up in a wheelchair. And, and that's all well and good. And I actually agree with it. Like, oh, I thought that Lawton... With his one, I thought that he was looking at maybe eight weeks for that, um, possibly six. Yeah, but I, I thought, thought six was kind of the minimum. Um, I, I feel like a bad speed tackle should be six. Yeah, but th- so that's for the match review committee to change their charges. If they're not going to yeah. change their charges, then it's it's pretty consistent that Naden gets four. So you can't really give Naden eight weeks when Lawton got four. Yeah, exactly. They're, well, they're that, far too similar. I, I think they both should have been six, but as long as they were the same, then okay, fine. Yeah, and a month of footy is still um, quite a bit to lose. And the thing is, too, if those guys do a similar tackle again, they'll have a, a massive loading this season, and that'll be that'll be the six to eight weeks that they'll be looking at um, if that happens again. So I guess that's where it sort of swings around. But, yeah, I, I mean, the Kafuti one is the other one that came out. It was very controversial, yeah. probably more controversial than the Naden one. Striking charge, um, I think everybody saw it, but um, Kafuti running the ball, over the top of Sam Walker and then seemed to put his elbow across his head, which meant that Sam Walker had to leave the ground. I thought there was a good chance that Sam Walker wouldn't be able to come back. So that's the type of thing where when you're looking at impacts on games with charges, that's a huge impact if you're taking out the halfback of the opposition side in a, in a big um, tight contest between two heavyweights. So uh, I, I think that this one's pretty split. Um, I'll be honest, like as a Roosters fan, I was of the opinion that um, I thought that he did do it on purpose, um, but I thought that he was coming down on him anyway. So it was sort of hard for me because we've seen Kafusi with a little bit of form where he's got that niggle in him and he can do these sort of things, but you can't really take that into account when you're looking at what actually happened in that in that chargeable offence because it's what happened in that, in that offence and action that he did. And to me, he's... <laughs> I think that he was always going to come down on Sam Walker with his arm because of how he was bumper barring, which is totally legal and fine and I've got no issue with. But whether he put extra mustard on it, which you do sometimes, you know, and you you see it even sometimes when you get blockers and stuff, you know there's going to be a bit of impact, but you put your extra shoulder into it just to to hit him a bit. You know, I I sort of think that that was there. And that is in the DNA of a lot of rugby league players. You know, when you're going to get the contact anyway, you put a bit extra into it to make them feel it. And that just, that just happens. But my problem, my biggest problem with it is like I can cop someone saying, look, it's, it was a natural action. There was nothing in it. I can cop that because I think it's pretty hard to prove intent when you're looking at those type of things. Um, but I could also very much cop, you know, he's done it on purpose because I think that there is a chance that, that he did. But the thing that I can't cop with the match review committee charges is if you're going to say someone got hit in the face with an elbow intentionally, like that and got taken off for a HIA, um, then that's a pretty serious charge. If you're going to say that they didn't do it, then it's no charge. So that's one thing that I think sections in the media have actually gotten really right. And I'll I'll even give Paul a bit of credit on NRL 360 because he said the same thing. And I totally agreed and I said it straight away. You know, if you're going to charge him, it can't be a fine of $1,800. It's, it's, that's got to be at least a two-week charge because you've just hit someone intentionally in the head with an elbow. 
And that's protecting the players and high tackles and all this other stuff. It doesn't matter if somebody's got the ball in their hand. If you're saying that they've elbowed somebody in the head, that's at least a couple of weeks at minimum. Um, but if Well, that's kind of what I was going to bring up is the fact that someone can have a, a high tackle that bounces up off the ball and and just grazes the chin. I'll bring up Ola Kawatu, who I still don't even think hit someone in the head and got mm. a suspension for it. Um, so there's no intent for him to hit high there. He's hit the ball, it's bounced up, grazed the chin, and he got a suspension. Yet someone, and, and look, I'm not saying that Kafuzi's pur- purposely put his arm there to purposely crush his head. I think you were right in the fact that he's just ended up in that position and he's put a little bit of extra in. Um, he, he's not moved his arm so that it lined up with his head and then drove it into, his arm was there already. He was falling. He wasn't able to move his arm away from Walker's head, but he also didn't need to put an extra little bit of effort into it. So the fact that there was still head contact, to me, that's the same as an accidental high contact that would then get a charge. How he has gotten off even the fine now is beyond me. Well, and it just makes it, it makes the whole process look stupid because if you're going to fine him, then you obviously think as a match review committee that he has done something wrong. And, you know, the, the thing that he's done wrong that you're saying is that he's, he's hit someone in the head with an elbow. And that's regardless of what fans or anyone thinks. Like, regardless of what you think, if the match review committee charges someone, you know, they, they should get suspended because that's a serious offence. And they've not only charged him lightly for something that's much, much worse than $1,800 fine, but they've then let him get out of it and said, no, no, okay, that's fine. We won't worry about it then. Like, again, like, if you've, if you've decided that you knew what his intent was and, you know, that's, that's case closed, you can't argue against that because the vision's there. The only thing that Kafuzi can argue is that I didn't mean to do it, but they've already decided by charging him that he did. So it's, it's just craziness to me and it's just another highlight in the, the highlight blooper reel of the NRL for 2022 with match review committee charges. Uh, it just The whole thing needs to be overhauled, and they've been saying for five years that it will be, and it just never is, and it never is enough, um, despite the small changes they've made this year. I want to talk about something more positive, so let's move on to another topic. Kane is a renewed Dolphins fan now. Um, yeah. You used to be a, a North Sydney Bears fan, didn't you? And then you've, you've decided that you're going to take up a Dolphins fanship and you're, you're going yep. to be supporting them. Is that how it came about? Yeah, so I grew up on the Central Coast and the North Sydney Bears had a lot to do with local footy here on the coast. So they would do a lot of gala days. They would do stuff with the schools. Um, I went into kind of Bears training squads through school and that sort of thing. So I was exposed to the players quite a lot. So obviously when you're young and you get exposed to the players, you start to follow that team. So I grew up with the Bears as my side. And um, when we got to the Northern Eagles era, that was a bit of a disaster. I, I wanted to follow the Northern Eagles. And after about three weekends, I looked at the lineup and saw that there was only about four Bears players in the entire squad and bailed, basically. And from then on, I, I kind of swung a little bit towards Newcastle because Andrew Johns was my favourite player and still is one of my top two with Turbo. But I, I never really supported Newcastle strongly. It was just that I loved watching Andrew play. And then when Andrew Johns retired, I just well, no, I'm a bear. I'm going to just sit on it. 
there was talk through the years, oh, 2012, we're going to get a team. 2014, we're going to get a team. And it just has never come about. So hearing about the new expansion of the Dolphins, I decided that I would jump on board. Um, It's time to actually support a team rather than someone that's not even getting a run anymore. And, yeah, I've been um, looking forward to every signing as it's come through. And there's quite a few signings there now. A lot of flack has been given as to old man's army and whatever, but I actually like the direction they're going. I also like the fact that they're not rushing and that they're looking at things long-term rather than just trying to do throw lots of money at this player so we can get them now and do quick fix sort of things that are going to muck up the cap. Because you've got teams like Manly who are paying Tom and Jake and DCE a million bucks each roughly. And it just means that the rest of the squad is pretty cooked, really. That It's just too top-heavy. So what I'm liking from Wayne at the moment is that he's signing players from good teams. He's signing players from good systems. And we've got getting a pretty good mix now of your veterans and your young players coming through. And look, I think guys like your Jesse Bromwiches and, and those type are, are going to be great for those first couple of years. They're the ones that are going to set the tone for how we're going to play footy how we're going to train, how much effort you need to be putting in on a daily basis. When we're in pregame, this is how we prepare. All of those little things that will then build a foundation for how the Dolphins will run their teams going forward. So that, that's the biggest thing that I'm excited about is that, yeah, the, the long-term planning rather than just trying to get a competitive team straight away. And look, there's a lot of good players that have been signed. There's a lot of fringe players that have, been in good teams, but are just pushed out due to um, better players coming through and whatever. So look, I'm pretty happy with where we're at. There's still a few spots that need to be filled, like in the halves. But signings like um, Jeremy Marshall King, I-, I love that signing. He's been great for the Bulldogs this year. He's actually been one of their better players throughout the whole season. And they've been able to sign him, who's a spine player, on 200k a season. So they're paying almost bottom dollar for a key spine member who's playing well. I, I just love that style of thinking. Okay, we, we need a spine player. I don't want to spend the, all of the bank. I'm going to go and find someone who's playing well that's going to be value. And that leaves a lot of cap space for throwing something at someone else who sees this squad being built and goes, you know what, I want to be a part of that now. And, yeah, I, I like that we've still got that flexibility. Yeah, the, the, the money ball so-called sightings are actually really good. Um, Jeremy Marshall King is huge value. And I can't believe that there wasn't another club who, uh, and even like, you know, the Roosters for me or even teams like the Storm. Like if you're you're going to pay guys 220K a year to sit in reserve grade as backups. So, you know, I'm surprised that he didn't get more, uh, I guess, more love before the Dolphins even moved on him because he could have been that. Um, I actually think that the Dolphins went under the radar on him because teams didn't look at him earlier because no one wanted him as a starting nine and everyone just assumed that he was going to want more money and be a start and be a definite yep. starter, which he might want to be a definite starter. And that's why he'd go to the dolphins. But 
Uh, I, I just think that no one even went after him and said he's 200k wanting to come over because of, I think people didn't think that he'd be able to do that. But uh, Dolphins did a really good signing with him. I think that those are all the positives and, and everything I would expect from a Dolphins fan. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I will say, you know, I, I do think they started to turn the corner when I saw guys like um, you and Aitken, I thought was a really good signing recently. Um, I because I think that he's got a degree of of class um, and you know he's obviously not a star but he's an above average NRL player that's still in his prime um, so yep. different to like a, a, he's only twenty six yeah yeah he's hitting his prime years now he's been in in first grade for a long time he came up very early and he was a very very promising junior um, so at Saints he was really promising early on so I, I think it's a fantastic signing and it's a different career tra- trajectory like I think you need more of those guys who are 26 uh, in that sort of age bracket in their actual career because guys like Jesse Bromwich and stuff are obviously at the end so I, I thought that was a real win getting someone like you and Aitken because he's an above average NRL player a really good starter that's underrated that probably could have a second win and a second prime coming where he could still improve but um, and another guy that's similar is um, Tom Gilbert I love the Tom Gilbert signing he's been playing really solid footy defensively strong and one of the, the big promising things that I always like to see is when he was signed, a lot of Cowboys fans were on social media and they were yep. filthy. They were filthy that he was let go. And a lot of the chat was that, and this is from people who are involved in Cowboys juniors and watching come through and that sort of thing. They all expected him to be the Cowboys captain in the next couple of years. Mm, that's a really big rap, isn't it? So, I mean, it's, and you're right. Like when, when you see other fan bases be able to see that, then it, it, it must be a good signing. I will say following on from you and Aiken, um, they were meant to have been, you know, there was reports that they'd sign Ryan Madison and then, you know, it came out and they didn't. They offered him a deal and the Eels actually went back with a four-year offer for Madison, especially with some of the players that they've lost in their pack. They've now got the room to do that. So it looks like they're going to miss out on Madison. When I th- first thought that they were going to definitely get him and they had him, I thought, wow, this is this is it, you know, Aitken and then Madison. And Madison is what I think that they need. Not that necessarily Madison is a player, but they need a couple of representative players that are in their prime. You know, you and Aitken is in those prime years, like I said, but he's not a rep player. And getting a couple of rep players, whether that's a Madison and a Munster, that all of a sudden makes the Dolphins a whole ke- a different kettle of fish as far as their competitiveness and how that team's put together. Yeah, I, I would, I've been chomping at the bit waiting for the Madison signing and, it's it's still a chance. The fact that there's still rumours over the last two days that uh, the Eels are looking at signing Angus from your mob uh, is actually still promising for me because if they're looking to sign Angus, then maybe that's because they've been told by Matto that he's not staying and that frees up a bit more cash for them to go and spend in that position because they're, they're relatively similar players, really. Um, although Matto's got a, a lot better hands than Crichton does. But yeah, I, I feel like there's still a chance that we can get him. I There's obviously not going to be Munster next year. He's still under contract and everything, so we can't even talk to him. But yeah, I, I'm still pretty positive about it all. I'm excited to see um, the young Panthers, Isaiah Katoa, have a game in the rep round coming up. Um, he was selected for, I can't remember which, Anyway, he was selected to play over the rep round, so I'll, I'll be watching him pretty closely. Guys like um, Valence Tawari, who's from rugby, has been carving up. He's been playing um, for Redcliffe in the um, 
Queensland Cup. He's had two games there and has scored three or four tries already. Um, so he's a centre, big, solid, tackle-busting, like Conrad Hurrell-style early years. So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to watch him play as well. Yeah, I, I, I do hope that they do get another um, spine player in that's going to be of note. Um, I, I have wondered recently with Cody Walker's struggles and the Wayne Bennett connection, you know, I, I think it would be unlikely that he'd want to leave from Redfern and he, he does have a, a young family and stuff as well. And obviously Redfern has always been his home pretty much and he's made it there. But with his struggles, um, with the large contract that he got given at his age as well, um, people forget that he, he didn't come through until um, you know mid to mid to late twenties. He really blossomed um, into a real NRL player. He's like thirty four now, so he there might be a chance that if Souths go badly to the second half of the year, that they start to look at their roster makeup and, and how they need to rejig it. And obviously, there's a way Bennett connection where they've got a really good relationship. So um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if if the Dolphins didn't kick the tires on something like that. If Souths were amicable on on letting Cody Walker go. Um, that might be the sort of thing that kickstarts them getting a spine player that can actually work for them for a couple of years at a high level. Even though Walker hasn't gone that well this year, I think he'd do really well in that Dolphins squad under Wayne for a couple of years. Uh, but look, the, the Dolphins are really coming together um, and they're getting some better signings now. And I'm looking forward to seeing the next turn of signings and, and how they actually fill out that roster. But let's move along. The next uh, topic at hand, there's, there's rumours swirling that Brad Fittler is going to get the Bulldogs coaching role. To the point that um, I think Wide World of Sports 9 and you know Fox Sports were ready to announce it the other day because they had hot tips and then it didn't come to fruition and didn't end up happening. But there was very strong mail. Now, whether that mail was you know, accurate or not, it looks like it wasn't 100% accurate, but there's got to be something there. Um, and I was, you know, I'll, I'll be totally honest about it. You know, I'm really starting to get um, a bit perplexed on the amount of, hatred almost that Fittler gets as a coach you know it's really quite baffling to me because he was a, a much beloved player um, he's he had a huge footy IQ um, he, he can be argued as the equivalent of like a, a Queensland Queenslander's love for a, a Thurston or a Lockyer um, and certainly like a Smith and Slater and all those guys he's in that sort of realm um, certainly someone who I think could be considered as a future immortal and then as a coach you know uh, I even saw someone on Twitter say, well, look, look how bad he did at the Roosters when he started coaching. It's like, that's 15 years ago when it was his first foray into coaching at all and he was a much younger man. Um, he's he's done a lot of work since in the international game. And then people point out, well, I don't know, he's, he's a terrible coach for New South Wales. He's won three out of four series. You won't find many coaches that have better than a 75% success record at origin level. And then there's always the talk, oh, yeah, but anyone could have won that. Well, you know, what does he have to do? Because he's he's got the runs on the board. He's a very smart operator. And the, the biggest thing that I think the Bulldogs fans need to get around, because on a lot of Bulldogs forums, and I read, I'm a sucker to reading all the different forums and stuff and all the different team pages and everything. I, I love getting all <laughs> info and, and seeing where the fans are at and stuff and where the opinions are. And on a lot of them, you know, the Bulldogs hate it and they don't want him at all. And it's like, well, yeah, okay. it, the Bulldogs fans really need to come around because, I mean, Fittler, you, you, there is no alternative to someone of Fittler's calibre. You know, getting a rookie coach in there is going to be a mistake. Um, getting someone else in there that's that's really got the even the early career accolades that Fittler has with his origin 
um, experience and international experience and also his playing career, there isn't any of those guys waiting to be picked off trees everywhere. You know, you don't have these options as a Bulldogs franchise. But the biggest thing for the Bulldogs club that I think that the, the fans really need to start to reconsider on is that you have a dynamic in that club at the moment where Phil Gould isn't going anywhere and nor should he. And he's a really important part of that rebuild and he has to be able to do his job properly. But to do his job properly, he has to have a coach that he can work with. And yep. Gus has got a lot of positives, um, but his negatives, which he'll probably even say, is that there's going to be coaches that he's not going to be able to work with or the coaches aren't going to enjoy working with him with his style and how he needs to control parts of that club. Um, whereas someone like Fittler has a great relationship with Gus, where even Gus would probably step back if Fittler asked him to at times. And they have got enough mutual respect with each other to be able to work with each other. And even when they're not getting along, be able to tolerate each other and move along fine and not have the relationship damage. All that stuff's really important, you know, and this to me is like a, it's almost lightning in a bottle. It's such a good fit for the Bulldogs. Yeah. And I'm just so, uh, I'm just, I just want to shake some Bulldogs fans and go, this is going to be the best thing for you. It's not that Fittler's going to bring you a premiership, but he's the best option and he actually fits really well. Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is, like you said, Gus involvement. And he's not going to be able to work with any particular coach. And any other coach other than Fittler would probably not want to go and work in that position with Gould sitting above them. Unless you're a brand new coach, right? In which case it doesn't fit you anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you're a brand new coach, then you're, you're kind of going to take whatever assistance you can get. But it does also mean that if Gus starts taking over because he's not trusting you or whatever, then you're out the door immediately, which he's done plenty of times. But yeah, I think the fact that Fittler and Gus do have that pretty close relationship that, that would work. I, I think any actual premiership winning coach or whatever wouldn't necessarily want to take that job with Gus sitting there. It would be like Cleary did at Penrith where if I'm, if you want me to come and coach, then you've got to get rid of Gus first because I'm not going to have someone looking over my, my shoulder every minute and questioning every decision I make and making me have to think about other things other than just doing my job. Yeah. And uh, look, I, I'm a I'm a fan of Gus's um, football impact, and I think that he's going to be good for the Bulldogs. One of the things that Gus has brought, and you know, again, it's been a little construed in the media lately, where you've got someone like Kikau saying, "Oh, you know, one of the reasons I went to the Dogs with Barrett." There's there's a lot of signings that are that are re-signed or going to the Dogs because Phil Gould as well. And I, I dare say that if Kikau got a much larger quote, he would also mention his relationship with Phil Gould too. But that's one of the other things that Fittler brings. Yeah. Like Fittler brings players. You know, there's a lot of players from the current New South Wales squads over the last few years that he's got a great relationship with. And if you talk to players who have played underneath Brad Fittler, they will all say they love playing for him. And they you can see when they talk, they speak glowingly about playing for Brad Fittler. And that's really important. And you're not going to get that with a rookie coach either, right? If you get a young coach yeah. As much as they might be liked or whatever or have some affiliation to some like Penrith Juniors if you're a Seraldo or something, they're not going to have the pull or anything that a Brad Fittler is going to have uh, at his stature as a coach, let alone the stellar playing career he's had where some of these guys grew up watching and idolising him. So he's got that pull as well, uh, which is a really big thing. And the other thing too is that he's got a, a really big media influence too, Brad Fittler, yeah. obviously with his work in the media, but... I think that he's got a respect in the media where 
you might not find that they go after him as much as some other guys, uh, which is actually going to be really beneficial to the dogs too. So, look, Kane, look, I, there's just so many boxes that he ticks um, and common sense just says to me that he's just, I can't see any downside from getting Brad Fittler in compared to the other. Yeah, I, I agree. I think he's probably is the best fit. And like I said, the, the Gus relationship, the fact that it just, he is who he is. Uh, he, people are going to want to go and play for him. He's a legend of the game. He's, been doing the state of origin stuff for a few years now. So you'll have a lot of links to different players. So he could potentially pull a few more players into that dog side. And look, I don't think that the dog's job is necessarily such a bad job. Like they've got the building blocks now, whereas they haven't had for quite a while. They're starting to pull their team together. Burton's a lock in their spine now. They've got Marnie coming next year. They still have to sort out who's going to be their fullback long-term. But it's slowly coming together. With Kikau arriving as well, they get another strike weapon. I, I feel like it wouldn't be that bad a job to go and get. I, unlike, and I don't want to Tigers bash anymore. No one wants that Tigers job. Yeah. They're, they're just an absolute mess. And the fact that their board is so controlling over everything, it, it just leaves you with no real ability to do what you want to do. So, yeah, I, I feel like they're going to have a really hard time trying to get someone to take that job. Yeah, 100%. And I, I'm salivating at what Matt Burton could become um, being coached by Fittler for the next few years. Uh, I, you know, Obviously, Matt Burton is a great half already in his young career. Yeah, And the sort of insight that Brad Fittler could give him and the coaching he could give him um, could be really beneficial for him stepping up to that next level too. Let's move along. Um, second last topic of the podcast, before we get there, I do need to mention the fantastic sponsor of the NRL All-Stars podcast in Top Sport. Topsport.com.au. You can go straight there on the website or you can download the really easy-to-use app. And if you'd like to have a punt, gamble responsibly, but jump on there and have a look because Top Sport are 100% Australian-owned company. You're going to get the best service in market, but you're also going to get some of the best odds that you'll find, not just on sport, but on racing as well. Avalanche won today. Oh, no, they've just gone OT as we're recording in the NHL. There was some fantastic hockey odds today. There's some great odds for Boston in the NBA tomorrow if you like overseas sports. But for all the super coach buffs, they've got the fantasy sports betting as well where you can bet on player performance markets on what fantasy points that uh, players are going to score over or under. And they've got their own criteria and what they look at based on the actual NRL stats there for fantasy point scoring. So jump on topsport.com.au. But if you do, create an account with the promo code from this podcast, SC All Stars, all one word. They'll know that you're one of our excellent listeners. They'll take excellent care of you as a result. So get on Topsport today, have a gamble, do it responsibly. Payne Haas, Jersey controversy. I wanted to talk about this one last week when it popped up, but didn't have enough time. Um, it's now had a week to settle, but it's still being talked about. So for those that didn't hear last week, Payne Haas came out and said that he uh, wants to move towards not having to wear any rugby league jersey, which has any alcohol, alcohol or gambling promotion on it. Um, and that... Uh, it went against his faith. Um, obviously, he's um, a lot of people know he's, he's Muslim. Um, that all just came out of the blue a little bit. Um, and I've got a lot of thoughts on this, Kane. So this is going to be Barnsley's rant of the week. You rant um, it, it, <laughs> I'm going to really go to town here. I want to, I want to say before I go at this one hard, that I gave Payne Haas a glowing review on his performance on the Origin field last week. So uh, I, I always recognise how good a player he is, 
but you know, I have to be fair in my assessment of everything else. And I tell you what, this absolutely stinks to me, uh, and for a number of reasons. You know, Hus brought up that he's been a Muslim since 2019, and his faith is very important to him. Last year was the year 2021 for those that need to keep up. Uh, and he was found drunk in the street where he abused a female police officer along with other officers as well, which was outrageously poor form. And he was drunk in the street. Now, I'm pretty sure he was Muslim in 2021 if he was Muslim from 2019. And yet he wants to remove alcohol advertising from anything affiliated with the NRL. Yet he was fine to get drunk and abuse police last year. You know, that's it absolutely smacks of hypocrisy for me. Um, and that's probably the biggest thing. Um, and it is the biggest thing with pain. You know, pain comes out and says all of these things um, that, you know, he's, he's been misconstrued or misunderstood or, you know, it was his management and, and all these things sort of come out. When at the end of the day, everything he says um, and all the attitude traits that he display are poor and it just keeps coming up after one after the other. I don't want to come across as someone that, you know, is all about hating on pain hearts. Like I said, I'll always give him props when he plays well. Um, if he turns his career around, he's still a young man. I'll, I'll give him massive props for that because plenty of guys were basically dickheads for their first four or five years in the NRL and then they pulled their head in as they got older. I hope that he does that, but he's not doing it. This is coming up all the time. And one of the other things with this cane that really puts a bee in my bonnet is that Huss has had that much controversy lately, again, and he keeps putting himself in the spotlight. You know, it's it's like... um. You get someone off maths or one of those reality TV shows that says, oh, look, you know, I didn't like the spotlight. I just want to be left alone. But follow me on Instagram. I'll put up 18 posts a day and you can comment on it. That's that's like paid hus to me, rugby league. You know, mate, if you don't want all this controversy, if you don't want people talking about you, if you don't want to get booed when you run on the field, stop saying rubbish. Stop talking. Go out there and just play footy. You know, but again, we have to put up with this um, attitude from Haas, which, you know, I respect everybody's religious rights um, and I respect everybody's beliefs. And if he's a devout Muslim, good on him. um, And I'll support that. But I'll go on to the last thing that I'll mention. That's fine, but your employer is the NRL and this is an employer that you're asking for an extreme pay increase for that you expect to be paid $1.3 million a year on your upgraded deal from. And that money on a large scale comes from, uh, both betting and alcohol sponsorship. And I would love to see someone test Payne Haas's resolve by saying to him, all right, mate, we're going to take it off your jersey and you're going to pay for play for $250,000 a year. You know, is that okay? Because that's the, that's a percentage fraction of how our revenue comes in from sponsorship dollars. So you can play in a, a blank Brisbane Broncos jersey and we'll remove everything from the fields that you play on and you can play, play for maybe 200, 250K a year. I reckon you'd knock that back. So... Yeah, there's a lot of issues that I have with it, but you know, to finish up on my rant on Payne Huss and his jersey controversy, uh, I just love to see him play some footy and not hear from him and his manager. And I think that they'd be both better off, and rugby league would be better off. But the biggest thing, he's getting paid a lot of money to play this game, and everybody that works for a boss has some sacrifices they need to make. And I don't think that it's that big a sacrifice for him to be making to have that sponsorship on his clubs and employers' jersey as his uniform that he has to wear when he's at work. And I dare say that if he has that taken off, what is the can of worms that comes up? Do we have vegetarians that say, I'm not going to let you advertise meat pies on my jersey? I'm not going to do this. Or, you know, you'll end up with 90% of the NRL players not, not allowing any sort of sponsorship. And you just can't open that can of worms. So I think it's poor form. And I'll and I especially think it's poor form after you know he had a drunken episode just last year. Yeah, I, I think the fact that he had that drunken episode does kind of paint a bit of a picture there. I, I'm not too 
phased by it. I, I think, like you said, it does potentially open up a can of worms going forward. But yeah, uh, here nor there. But the biggest thing for me is just, like you said, I think Payne Haas just needs to stop talking and get back to playing footy and stay out of the media because he's, he's ruining his own image a little bit. And as much as he's trying to get more money, if he keeps going the way he's going, clubs are going to want to pay him less, not more. And I, I just want to watch him play footy. I don't need to hear anything about what he's doing off the field. Like I understand that religion will come into play, but yeah, like you said, it's, you're going to have sacrifices in any religion at times. And yeah, I think that the, the Jersey thing is a bit, yeah. Okay. I, I see where you're coming from, but does it matter that much? I guess. I mean, when, they're not going to ask him to turn up to a, um, a Tui's promo or to um, or to go exactly. and do a, a sports bet lunch or something, you know. Like it's, yeah, if he declined from that sort of stuff, you'd understand. All he has yeah. to do is run out in his jersey. Yeah, I agree. Look, let's get on to something positive. Let's finish off on, on a favourite segment of a lot of fans, a legendary one. Um, this is where we look back on an old player's career um, and have a look at what they did in the past and do a bit of a review and put the comb over what a great career someone has had. And for this person, they had a fantastic career as an NRL player, as a Queensland legend, and as an Australian representative legend as well in Darren Lockyer. So Darren Lockyer, um, a lot of people don't know this, but he actually started playing Aussie rules. Um, and I didn't know it until a few years ago, actually, when I was reading up on him. But okay. he started, yeah, country Queensland, started playing Aussie rules. Um, and he, he actually started because it was, you know, that was what was played where, where he was at. And he was a sporting young lad and everything. And then he moved along and actually went to a different town in Queensland and from where he was, you know, it was really rugby league unless he wanted to travel a long way. So he started playing started playing rugby league and, and that's where he transitioned as a young fellow. I think it was six or seven years old or something. So um, that's a little bit of a tidbit um, that a lot of people don't know and I didn't know it. But he debuted at 18 in 1995, has a, had a career going from 1995 to 2011. And over that time, he won three grand finals. But uh, one of the biggest things that I think that people remember Kane and sort of bring up because he brought up as a, a potential um immortal and that is that he actually won the golden boot in two different positions and, and that's something that hasn't that doesn't get done so he won the golden boot award as the best player in the world at 5'8 and also at fullback yeah so he he came through actually um as a youngster as a 5'8 and when he actually came into grade he got moved to fullback which is very different to what happens with some other players because you do get fullbacks that come through these days and they actually get moved into the halves into first grade um, he was the other way around. But I think for me, the big thing with that was he actually had three years as Dallium fullback of the year. And then he also got moved uh, around 2004 to 5'8 and had three years from 2004 where he won Dallium 5'8 of the year. And that's a pretty big deal to go along with his three grand finals. Uh, when we're going through the numbers before I hand over to you, when we're looking at the facts, he had... 355 NRL appearances, but 390 if you consider his uh, finals appearances as well. And had a pretty good success rate too, around 64% win percentage. Um, Kicked a lot of goals too, so he's multi-talented, but also got up to almost 1,400 points, um, including his tries. And, you know, his strike rate with his tries, he was getting up there towards 40% of his games he scored a try. So fairly prolific, Uh, massive state of origin career, 36 origins, nine tries in those 
And he just had an absolute stellar career as a one-club man, which you never see. So from 1995 to 2011, he only played for the Broncos, which a lot of fans will know. But look, Kane, my my personal just growing up watching Darren, Darren Lockyer as far as a player, uh, when he came onto the scene, I just remembered him being, I think the best word for him was silky in how he moved. He just, he's... Yeah, his speed. The, the word I always come up with for him is just class. Yeah, it, it, it just that's class. a really good one. Really classy, um, and it was right from the get go. And when he came in, he was obviously playing fullback, like I said initially, and very fast. But how he moved was so silky. It was almost I would compare him to the era prior, um, a, a Brett Mullins like um, with how he would run the ball. He, he could just move along the field, and it was in ways where you'd see him get hit and guys just fall off, and you wouldn't really understand with his size how he could cut through defences that way. Really good runner of the ball, but you could see that he had a really good footy IQ from playing 5-8, and that was there. And when he got older in his career, and certainly the midway point, his playmaking really started to get a lot of confidence in the NRL level. And when he moved to 5-8, you know, he moved away from that um, silky runner that he used to be to a guy that just had amazing IQ and and rugby league awareness um, where he could pass and kick and set everything up. And he really had the complete package um, and probably one of the most complete attacking packages out of any player I've ever seen in my lifetime. The knock is always going to be when you're looking at complete packages defensively. Um, he was a pretty small man and he wasn't a fantastic defender and he often got protected by guys like uh, tons of Tony Carroll and, the, and those sorts. But yep. I mean, like as an attacking player, um, he's right up there and the way he could do it in so many different ways and in the phases of his career, that's probably what I remember of him the most. You know, the thing that I remember the most is just like watching him be a gun at fullback and then going to 5'8 and wondering, oh, is he going to be able to do the transition? And then he's the best 5'8 in the comp. It, it was, he was, like you said, silky. He, everything that he did oozed class. He just did everything easy. With, with his running style that you mentioned as well, it never looked like he was running fast. It just looked like mm. he was flowing around the field. And then all of a sudden he's, he's gone. Where did he go? Um, and his kicking game was brilliant, goal kicking really good, just like a really all-round package attacking player. And it's really hard to compare him. Like, I don't actually think that there is a comparison that I could make where I could say he's like that fullback Um, because uh, people say like Slater, but like, you know, Slater obviously had a a big attacking game and had skills, but Slater's, Slater's ball playing, like people forget someone like Slater, his ball playing came very late in his career. And even then you wouldn't have it at an elite top of the league level like Lockyer's was. And that only really happened for Slater when he was having some of those extended injury periods where he was not able to go and do full sprints. So he was actually doing a lot more ball work stuff. So he was refining his skills in that way. And then when he would come back from injury, he'd add a little bit more. But yeah, Lockyer had that from the get-go. He was just had that really good vision. His passing was crisp. His kicking was just really smart. And yeah, just a, a brilliant player. Loved even, watching. even towards the end of his career, like I remember him um, in his in his last years and he had like a win over the Gold Coast Titans where he kicked a 45-meter field goal to win it. And it was 18-all. Yeah. And it's, he just struck it like nothing and it went straight over the post. You know, I remember that really well towards the end of his career. He just, he had the full kick bag and it was just... Probably a lot of um, younger fans don't remember that it was yeah, it, it probably wrongly to me get said that, you know, no one's ever revolutionised the position or played to. It, it has been done before. I think it gets a bit overkill. But he, he did it very well. But one of the things that does happen is that you do have 
points in time in the game where certain positions play a certain way, and he bucked that trend. So certainly we have, in in many decades past, had players that were at fullback that could ball play. But in the era that he came through, you know, it was on the back of guys like Brett Mullins and those types, and even a Timmy Brasher in the 90s and some of these guys, they were runners. And certainly in that yeah. um, late 80s to to, to mid-90s era, it, all the fullbacks were running fullbacks. They weren't really these guys that would put up kicks that would, you know, make plays with their passing game and stuff, and he could. So he was he completely bucked the trend of what a successful fullback was when he debuted in 95. In that era, he was a one-of-a-kind, um, and that was... So certainly in that era, he did sort of reinvent the position. And when we see that afterwards and you see the trappings of that in, in later 90s when guys tried to make, um, you know, halves into fullbacks and so forth and it didn't work because it wasn't easy to do. Obviously, now that's the norm, right? Like if you had a, if you had a phenomenal running fullback that actually doesn't pass the ball much or kick um, that was super successful and one of the best in the league now, like it would turn heads because you don't get that power where it was kind of the opposite then, which a lot of people probably don't realise. Yeah, well, you've got your, your guys like your Dylan Edwards that are not known for their passing game these days, and then you've got guys like Drinkwater who's all pass and kick. So we, we do have a, a quite a variance of different types of styles in terms of fullback, but for Lockyer at, at the time, there was definitely no one like him. No, and, and and even though you've got those sort of guys now, none of them are sort of bucking that trend of what a prototype fullback is and being the best in the league. Likewise, even at 5'8", too. No. Like, you know, you don't have any 5'8s like Lockyer now. There just there isn't anyone even close. Um, and even, I no. think that in his, in his era, certainly guys like um, the Dailies, the Fittlers, um, even, you know, Thurston, if you want to consider him a 5'8", like those sort of guys, they definitely had that sort of... Um, that sort of playmaking and mix that, that, that Lockie had, but in different ways. Um, but these days, it's actually a position that's a little bit unheralded even, where you don't have those sort of players. But geez, he was a sensational player for Brisbane, a whole career. The Kangaroos, uh, also phenomenal, phenomenal Maroons player for that Queensland side. Um, and just his, his all-round game. Tough watching him play for the Maroons. Oh, it's just an amazing career. And look, Quite a quite a lot of longevity as well. Like he he went for a long time for someone who I think early in his career too. And this is the other one of the other things that I remember him for. And some people will think that this is a little bit of a, uh, a disrespectful thing to remember him for. But I remember him getting belted because yep. he was so small and he you know even defensively going to hit guys and tackle and he he get steamrolled a lot. But that was to his credit because he had a toughness that I remember of him yep. that you wouldn't have thought, especially early on. And certainly a lot of pundits thought, oh, no, this kid's not going to make it. He's he's too small. He's going to get hurt. He's certainly not going to last long term. And he was in the NRL from 1995 to 2011. And he, and he did that as a stellar career every single year. He made a huge impact for the Brisbane Broncos and for his rep size. So I remember him getting belted right from the get-go. And that never actually stopped. He still kept getting belted. But he kept coming, you know, and that was a real good thing about his toughness as well. Yeah, definitely. And that's the, the passion. You, you've got the drive to be a winner. And you, if you're going to get bashed, well, you get back up and you go again. And he definitely had that. And he had a, an incredible career. Huge amount of games too, which, are, you know, a lot of 90s players, you don't really get that. Um, he was probably coming towards the end of, you know, certainly the guys that played in the 80s. It just wasn't. He was just too tough um, physically and also for 
the almost semi-professional nature of the game for guys to be able to go for 16, 17, 18 years like we see these days. Um, and Lockyer was almost one of the first that did that. So certainly um, Fittler did, but he had some big injuries towards the end. Um, and obviously we see Joey Johns as another great of, of the 90s that, that ended up with a lot of injuries. Lockyer was one of the first that actually came in and actually had a really long career like that um, at that top level. So um, didn't have the the huge drop-off that some other guys did too. Um, I think that Thurston's probably a, a modern-day comparison um, that sort of came through after Lockie and certainly played with him, but sort of, you know, peaked when Lockie was on the downward. Yeah, so uh, Lockie's just, his playmaking and everything was just um, first class and how he finished was, was still first class. Whereas someone like Thurston, for as good as what he was, his last couple of years, you know, really was a, a really big downward trend. You know, he really plummeted in his performances and, and his effect on matches. That's not to talk down on Jonathan Thurston. He had a phenomenal career. He's one of the all-time greats. But, you know, Lockie did it right to the end as far as his impact at a high level. And he still had that really high level of class, whereas Thurston, you could see, actually see the skill starting to drop off. And that happens with a lot of guys. It, it didn't seem to happen as much with Lockie. No, not at all. And the only other one that really played well right to the end of the career after their long career was like Cameron Smith. He was the only other one that I can think of that was still playing better than anyone else in that position at the end of their career. And you could still, you could even see that Smith was slowing down, but he was still better than everyone else. Yep. A hundred percent. But Darren Lockyer, phenomenal career. Um, great legend rewind to do. That is the end of the podcast. Kane, I really love having you on to talk some footy. Um, NRL All-Stars podcast debut. I know you go onto a lot of other podcasts, but I appreciate you making the time to jump on. That's my pleasure, mate. I'm glad to get the call up. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Well, you can probably hear Kane around the traps on a lot of the other podcasts, but if you want to hear me and the NRL All-Stars podcast, you can find us on SoundCloud, also on Audible, Amazon, Spotify, and of course, iTunes. And make sure you subscribe where you can on those and you get the episode straight away. Also, make sure you follow us on Twitter, NRL underscore SC underscore All-Stars. And make sure to, if you're going to jump on and have a punt on topsport.com.au, use our promo code SC All-Stars, all one word, and they'll take great care of you. Thanks for tuning in to another Talking Footy episode with another Talking Footy next week. But round of footy coming up from tonight. Enjoy the footy. Enjoy round 15. Can't wait to chat some more footy with you all again next week. Hey now, you're an all-star, get your game on, go play. Hey now, you're a rock star, get the show on, get paid.